morning. I'm Joseph Nemer. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. I read, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consistent of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, thank you, Joseph, so much for reading God's word for us. Uh, and if you've been able to join us uh, here at Christ Community over the last few Sundays, then you know that we have begun a new fall teaching series called Reconstructing Faith reconstructing faith. We're interested here in trying to thoughtfully engage with the current conversation that's been happening about folks who are deconstructing their faith. And what we've been doing is asking the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Ephesus, to serve as a guide for us on that journey. And I don't know about you, but so far I have really, really, really enjoyed soaking in the rich brilliance of the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul's deeply intentional structure and layering has been a joy, I think, for us to unpack together. I mean, I still find myself thinking about what we were able to cover last Sunday as we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Because the movement, I'm using that word intentionally, right? Like the movement that happens in just those 10 verses is remarkable to me. Uh, look just again at the beginning of verse 1 and then the beginning of verse 10. And you were dead, but then this is verse 10, this is the end of the passage, for we are his workmanship, right? In just a short 10 verses, we go from in the grave to this extraordinary declaration that we are God's workmanship, his workmanship. Last Sunday, I used the image of a, a Stradivarius violin to try to get at this idea of the word workmanship in Ephesians 2.10. I mean, this is beautiful, isn't it? This is beautiful. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says, we, we were dead, but now we are God's workmanship. 
his workmanship. And I think another way that we could sum up the incredible movement that happens in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 is this. When we surrender over in faith our hearts, souls, and lives to God, then he begins to build us into something. He begins to build us into something. If you are in Christ, if that's your story, if you are in Christ, then God is building you into something extraordinary that can bless the world. And actually, I think there's more good news too, right? Like that's the good news in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, but that's not where the letter stops, is it? Like there's six chapters in the New Testament letter to Ephesians. We've got a lot more ground to cover. That's not where the good news ends. And as we heard from Joseph in our scripture reading just a moment ago, this morning's passage, which is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, what, is it, what does it begin with? It starts with the word, therefore, which crucially means that in Paul's mind, what he is about to say in the next 12 verses is going to be deeply connected to what he has just said in the past 10 verses. In other words, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 functions as the foundation upon which Paul is about to lay Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And I just cannot get over where all of this passage, our passage for this morning, where all of it beautifully crescendos. Uh, you heard Joseph read these verses just a moment ago, but let's, let's take another look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We're going to start at the end. We're starting at the end. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. The NLT translates that. You're part of God's family. Verse 20. You've been built on, the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Church, here's the good news of all of Ephesians chapter 2 in one phrase. As God is building you, so also is he building us. As God is building you, so also he is building us. I mean, notice the parallelism with me in these two passages. In verse 10, Paul crescendos to say that we once were dead, but now we are what? We are God's workmanship, right? But then he transitions in the next verse, and where does all that crescendo? So individual workmanships, that's the end of verse 10, but what is the end of verses 21 and 22? We are God's collective holy temple being built together for a dwelling place for the Spirit. As God is building you, so also he is building us. That's Ephesians 2 in a phrase. That's Ephesians 2 in a phrase. Now, this idea from the Apostle Paul, it, it really does lead me to be curious about what was going on in the church in Ephesus that would cause this note of emphasis from him. Like, what's the occasion? This is a good reminder on the face of it. I'm glad we have this reminder. But what was happening in the church in Ephesus such that Paul would emphasize this point to them? Well, thankfully, we can glean quite a bit more from the rest of this passage. So we've begun at the end, but now let's go back to the beginning. We've begun at the end, but here's the beginning. Verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. So then, remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. 
which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. And in fact, you were without hope and without God in the world. Y'all, God can do anything, right? But in choosing to build us, the church, into a holy temple, I'm convinced that he has undertaken a building project of epic proportions, hasn't he? And I think this is true for lots of different reasons, that God's building project of a holy temple is a, is a really big building project. I think it's true for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I think it's true is that really we could not be more different than one another in the church. I mean, this is true today in Shawnee, Kansas in 2022, and this was certainly beautifully true in the early church. Differences abounded among the earliest followers of Jesus. Race, ethnicity, gender, life stage, socioeconomic status, vocations, what people did for work, citizenship, and on and on and on and on. Differences abounded. How is God going to build this holy temple? And in this passage, what Paul is doing, in these verses, he's specifically addressing two of the different ethnicities and cultures that existed in the early church. He angles his address in these verses toward one of those ethnic groups, the Gentiles, but he actually also clearly references the other ethnic group when he says, by those called the circumcised, meaning the Jews. And actually, while it is a bit awkward and uncomfortable, those terms, circumcised and uncircumcised, are really important to Paul's point. Because he could have just more plainly said, Jew and Gentile, a lot of other times he, he does do that. But he doesn't in this moment right here for a really important reason. And the reason is because in this cultural moment, in the Apostle Paul's cultural moment, to call someone uncircumcised was an insult of the highest degree. Like th them was fighting words for a Jew to call someone the uncircumcised. It was, it was the worst. It was like sort of, I got to say something mean towards you and attack you and demean you. This is what I'm going to do. And so what Paul is doing by, by carefully selecting these terms and laying them out at the beginning of this passage is he's trying to remind us, remind his original listeners and remind us here today that there was incredibly strong animosity between the Jews and between the Gentiles. Really, really, really strong animosity. In fact, he, he goes on after just these first two verses to describe this animosity a little bit more. Let's take a look, jump verse 13 and go to verse 14 for a moment. For he, this is a reference to Christ, we're going to get to this, for he is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Now, there's a ton of good news in these verses, right? And we're going to get to that good news, but, but please stick with me on the highlighted phrase for a moment. The dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility. Now, I said that I think Paul's making the point that there was strong animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles, but I actually think the Apostle Paul's word is better, hostility, hostility. And what we need to know is that between these two ethnic groups, there had been generations, 
generations of anger, conflict, fighting, literal wars, and death. Generations of this. Friends, there was centuries of this between these two ethnic groups. Hostility indeed. And Paul mentions this dividing wall too. He's got the word hostility, but he says that there's a dividing wall. What, what's going on with this word and this phrase? Dividing wall, right? There's a, there's a wall apparently, and I think it does fit with the building metaphor that Paul is unpacking in this chapter, right? God is building us as individuals into his workmanships, and God is building us collectively into his holy temple. But then what's going on here? Oh, wait, there's a dividing what? A dividing wall that apparently is getting in the way of God's building project, a dividing wall. So I think that the dividing wall is part of Paul's metaphor, this construction project that God has undertaken. I think it's part of Paul's metaphor, but, but we really can't miss this. There was an actual wall. There was an actual physical wall in the temple of Jerusalem. That was part of God's design in some ways, right, to, to have a wall that would, that would sort of prevent the Gentiles from getting in. But was, what was not part of God's design was the inscription that was later put up into this temple wall. So there's multiple courts, right? You have the Holy of Holies in the very inner court, the place where nobody enters except the high priest once a year to offer atoning sacrifice for the people. And then you have, right, you've got these different courts, and there's a court of the Gentiles, and they, they cannot pass the actual dividing wall, right? But the hostility that exists as a result of this, it's not the law itself, it's not Jewishness itself that caused it, but this inscription, can, can you guys read that? Do you know that language? <laughs> no, I've got it translated here, right? But the, the, the inscription, it, this is not part of the Old Testament. This was an add-on. And this is what the inscription says. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Hostility indeed. I mean, again, the big idea of Ephesians 2 is as God is building you, so also he is building us. Do not lose sight of how good, good news this is, right? This is good and great and glorious news. But church, doesn't it seem like there are times that we are so far from this? Doesn't it seem that there are times where it seems like we're never going to get here? Times where the differences, the animosity, the hatred, the hostility can just sort of overwhelm us almost to the point of despair. I mean, some moments I look at this idea and I just sort of, I go, God, how is this possible? God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to accomplish this building project? How are you going to build us, us who are so different? How are you going to build us into your holy temple? How are you going to do it? We skipped a verse, didn't we? Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see it? 
Do you see how what Paul established so clearly back in the very earliest words of this letter, Ephesians chapter 1, the very earliest pages and words of this letter is now bearing this glorious fruit. It is in Christ Jesus that God is collectively, collectively building us into his holy temple. It is by the way of the blood of Jesus that this is happening, and it is only in Jesus that this can happen. It is only in Jesus that God's good and glorious construction project is possible. It is only in Jesus. Do you hear me on this? It is only in Jesus that such a vastly different people can come together, can come together and can be built into God's holy temple, fit for a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit, only in Jesus Christ, nowhere else. As God is building you so also he is building us in Christ Jesus. He's doing this in Christ Jesus. And step one in his building project of God's holy temple, right? That's us. He's building. He's doing this in Christ. Step one is to take down some dividing walls. Step one is to take down hostile dividing walls. I mean, isn't that what God is getting at, what Paul is getting at in these verses? The idea that God is first tearing down so that he can then build back up? Let's make sure we don't miss that. I think that God is tearing down what is negative and hostile so that he can build back what is good and beautiful. I think that God is tearing down the hostile dividing walls that separate us so that he can build back us in Christ Jesus, into his holy temple. I mean, just look at verse 16. Look at how incredible this is. Christ made peace between Jew and Gentile. Why did he do that? So that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Y'all, when Jesus surrendered himself to death, when he gave up and over his spirit, it wasn't just the temple curtain that tore. It was the dividing wall that tore and that came down. And Jesus, what does it say here? He crushed the hostility to death underneath his feet. As God is building uh, you, so also he is building us. So here's the question I keep wondering about. This is a question for us, it's for the church. It's a question that I want to ask of us in this room today, in this moment, but I think this is a question that I could have asked the church in first century Ephesus as well. Here it is. If Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, why do we keep putting it back up? If Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, why do we keep putting it back up? And to be clear, I actually think this is essentially the question that the Apostle Paul is asking the church in Ephesus. I think it's the question that he basically has in mind, right? In these verses, he paints this soaring vision of what God is building them into, but his implication, I think, is this question. Paul would say to his original readers, if Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, then why do we, why do you keep building it back up? And church, I thought a lot about this question this week. I even thought, do I need to ask it differently? Should I ask it at all? And in the end of the day, I thought, no, this is, 
I need to ask this. I need to ask it of me. I need to ask it of us. And I want to do it in a gentle tone, right? This is not a fun question. I understand how pointed this is. I understand how sharp this is. But I think we need to ask it. I think we need to wrestle with this question because the truth is, both in the first century and today in the 21st century, the truth is, we can't disagree on this, right? The church is far more divided than she ought to be. The church is far more divided than we ought to be. And this is unfortunately true in a ton of different ways that the church is far more divided than she ought to be. But one such way that the church often divides, one such way that the church often divides is, around, is along race and ethnicity lines. One such way that the church often divides is along the lines of race and ethnicity. It was true then, and I think unfortunately it is still true today. And it might be helpful to distinguish between these words. They get thrown around a lot, so what, what, am I, what do I mean here? Well, scholars Kenneth Matthews and M. Sidney Park help us. They write, race and ethnic are often used as synonyms, but each has a different nuance. Race refers to inherited physical traits that characterize peoples, such as facial features and skin color. On the other hand, the term ethnic, Greek ethnos, identifies an affiliated people group who share history, traditions, and culture, such as familial descent, language, and religious and social customs. Hopefully, these are helpful differentiations. And in Ephesians 2, as we've seen, Paul is directly addressing the divided hostility between two different ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And friends, this was a major point of tension. In some ways, this was one of the singular questions that the church had to wrestle with in its earliest days after Jesus ascended into heaven. This Ephesians 2 is not the only place that we see this in the New Testament. For instance, remember with me what happens in Acts 15, the famous Jerusalem council. Uh, at this point, the gospel of Jesus and the power of spirit has beautifully torn down innumerable cultural barriers. The gospel was on the move. And people, both left and right, both Jews and Gentiles, are becoming followers of Jesus. Amen, right? But what happened was this reality of now Jew Gentiles entering into the people of God, it pushed the church to have to make some incredibly important decisions, like answering this question. Will we require these new Gentile followers of Jesus to become culturally and religiously Jewish? Will we require these new Gentile followers of Jesus to become culturally and religiously Jewish? That's a massive question, right? With immense implications. And it could have gone in any number of different directions. But, but listen to the Apostle Peter. Oh, the Apostle Peter's story in this, in this journey that he had here is remarkable. Go read Acts 10 and then, and then remind yourself what happens in Acts 15. Brothers, this is Peter addressing the church leaders, the early church leaders. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, that's Acts 10, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made, do you hear this? He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Oh, come on, church. Amen, right? 
This moment here in church history, you can hear me say that this story in Acts 15 clearly proves that there are beautiful instances of churches overcoming the dividing wall of race and ethnicity. I think this story proves that. And I think that there are more positive stories to tell, both historically and currently. I've had the privilege of of living some of those positive stories of these dividing walls coming down. But can we be honest? There are also rampant stories of pain and exclusion throughout church history and in our modern moment related to race and ethnicity. This week I was reminded of the story of Richard Allen. Richard Allen is the founder of the historically black uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. You may have seen that, AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Allen was born in 1760. You see that on the screen. He was born in 1760 into slavery in Philadelphia, and he became born again at age 17. Allen was gifted to preach, and he persuaded many, even his master, to begin to follow Jesus. Eventually, Allen was able to purchase his freedom, and he began to travel the mid-Atlantic states as an itinerant Methodist preacher, and he quickly gained a following and a really, really positive reputation. In 1786, he returned to Philadelphia, and he joined St. George's Methodist Church, and he actually began to lead in the church in a variety of ways, and soon Allen attracted dozens of new black members, which so far so good, right? Well, the increase in black attendees raised the racial tensions at the church, and St. George's white leadership responded by enforcing a policy of strict racial segregation forcing black attendees to sit first around the edge of the sanctuary on the wall and then moving them to an even more divided location up in the gallery. One Sunday in November of uh, 1787, one Sunday in November of 1787, one of the other black leaders in the church, a man named Absalom Jones, Absalom Jones kneeled for prayer in a part of the church that he was not allowed to be in. Here's how Richard Allen describes that moment. No screen. Just listen to these words. Listen to his words. We had not been long upon our knees before I heard considerable scuffing and low talking. I raised my head up, and I saw one of the trustees having hold of Reverend Jones, pulling him up off his knees and saying, you must get up, you must not kneel here. Mr. Jones replied, wait until prayer is over. The trustee said, no, you must get up now or I will call for aid and force you away. Mr. Jones said, wait until prayer is over and I will get up and trouble you no more. But with that, the trustee beckoned one of the other trustees to come to his assistance. They came and they pulled up Mr. Jones from his knees. By this time, prayer was over, and we all went out of the church in a body, and they were no more plagued with us in the church. Church, if Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, why do we keep putting it back up? And I know you might be thinking, Okay, that's not great. 
That's clearly a reconstructed dividing wall of hostility in the church. That's ugly. But that was also literally 235 years ago. We've come so far. And in one sense, I'm totally with you. We, there has been so much progress made because of the grace and mercy of God. We have come so far, and it is good and right to celebrate the stories of progress. It is. But another question that I'm wrestling with is, have we arrived? Is God's glorious and good building project of his holy temple, is it perfectly completed yet? More recently than 1787, sociology scholars Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they wrote a book called Divided by Faith. It's subtitled, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. While acknowledging the vast complexity of the conversation, the argument that they put forward is that religion broadly and Protestant evangelicalism specifically, which Christ's community is squarely embedded within, too often contributes to racial and ethnic divides in our society. From the thesis statement paragraph in the introduction, Emerson and Smith, they write this. We argue that religion, as structured in America, is unable to make a great impact on the racialized society. In fact, far from knocking down racial barriers, religion generally serves to maintain these historical divides and actually helps to develop new ones. Friends, if Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility, why do we keep putting it back up again? Especially when there is a much better and a much more beautiful building project that we could undertake, right? Again, as God is building you, so also he is building us. That's God's building project. And one of the great mysteries of how God accomplishes his work in his world is he invites us to participate. Have you ever marveled at that? Like God is doing something in this world. God is doing something in his church. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, will you join me? And I look at myself and I look at my life and I go, I wouldn't ask me to join. But God does. God does, right? Now, the building metaphor, right? There's a, there's a great and glorious and grand construction project that is going on for God to, to build his people into his holy temple. And within that metaphor, on the job site, who is God the Father? Oh, he's the foreman, y'all. He's in charge, right? And, and, and who is, who, who's the cornerstone? We know what the cornerstone is, right? It's the foundational stone. It's the one that goes in first. We don't have to guess. Ephesians 2.20 says it. Jesus is the cornerstone. God the Father, he's the foreman, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. But then what does God do? He looks at me, he looks at you, and he says, hey, come on, put on a hard hat. Pick up a hammer. There's good work to be done. We are constructing a holy temple for, to be a dwelling place for my spirit. Did you catch the third member of the triune Godhead? God the Father, he's the foreman, he's in charge. Jesus, God the Son, he's the cornerstone. God the Holy Spirit, this is where he's going to live. And he looks at me and he looks at you and he says, pick up a hammer, there's good work to be done. He invites us to participate. So that's the question. How do we participate in God's building project? How do we participate in God's building project? Listen, you are building something. 
That's not a question. You didn't know it. You didn't know you were a construction worker, but you are. We, we're all building something. The only question is, are you, are you rebuilding hostile dividing walls that Christ has already torn down? Or are you participating in God's good and better building project? That's the question. So how do we do it? Closing question, really quickly, three things. First, pray with humility. How do we participate in God's building project? Pray with humility. And y'all, we, this is not, like, of course the pastor said to pray. This, this is not trite. This is not cheesy. We have to start here. This is doomed to fail if we're not on our knees like Absalom Jones. Praying with fervency. Begging God to help with fervency. To be in charge with fervency. We have to pray with humility. We should all be asking God, every single one of us, with genuine humility and openness. Where might I be rebuilding hostile dividing walls? Where might I be participating in the wrong building project? God, please reveal to me any way in which I'm doing this. God, please reveal to me, whether knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, God, give me eyes to see. We should all be on our knees praying this. When I was in seminary, I had a horrifying realization. And I'm still really ashamed to admit this to this day. This is really hard for me to admit. I'm preparing to be a pastor in the church, right? Actually, I was pastoring the church. I was a student ministries director at the church I grew up in. I'm in seminary. And at some point, the Lord uh, reveals to me that subconsciously, whenever uh, I'm in class and someone... One of my classmates, whenever someone that is not of my racial and ethnic background, whenever they ask a question or whenever they contribute a comment, I don't listen as closely. This is years ago, right? I'm in seminary. And you can imagine my horror at realizing this. You can imagine my shame at realizing this. And church, please let me tell you how quickly this pushed me to my knees in prayer. In confession and repentance first, God, I'm so sorry, forgive me. Forgive me, for I have sinned against my fellow brother and sister, and I have sinned against you. And God, please, may it never be again. Pray with humility. Because I've still got such a long way to go, right? I haven't arrived, and maybe you haven't arrived either, which is why I want to invite all of us to start here. I want to invite all of us to pray with humility. Second, we have to learn with humility. We've got to pray with humility, and we've got to learn with humility. I want to ask, how aware are you of this complex conversation, both histor- historically and, and currently? Did you know the story of Richard Allen? It's okay if you didn't. What about currently? I mean, goodness gracious, currently, the conversation about race is at the forefront of our cultural moment, isn't it? But listen, when it comes to learning and growing an awareness of this deeply important matter, where and who you learn from is incredibly important. We start with the Bible, always, always, just like we did this morning, right? We started with the Bible, with Ephesians chapter 2. And friends, one of the great crescendos within God's big story comes in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. That crescendo is that there's this great and incredible, incredible multitude from, and I quote, all tribes and all peoples and all languages, and all of them are gathered in unity, worshiping Jesus. You see, I'll spoil it. In the end, God gets his building project done. 
In the end, God gets his diverse yet unified temple. In the end, God completes his building project, and I can't wait. It's, it's going to be a lot like this morning when we were singing out, right? But even better. But even better. And even more. And even bigger. And even more unified. So yes, in this matter, just like in all others, we must submit ourselves to Scripture first and learn with humility. But there's this thing called common grace. And what common grace means is that all truth finds its origin in God. Anywhere you find truth, celebrate because it's God's truth. Which therefore means that there are good resources that build upon the foundation of the Bible that can help us grow in awareness as we learn with humility. I mean, just yesterday, in the Saturday morning weekly update email, the blog that led was from one of our senior pastors, Nathan Miller. Many of us here know Nathan really, really well. And he had a few, he encouraged some engagement with a few select resources. And taking a next step toward one of those resources could be a great way for you to learn with humility in this arena. Hopefully you find those resources helpful. So first, pray with humility. Second, learn with humility. And third, relate with humility. Are you catching that I think humility is a pretty big deal? <laughs> I, I, th I said once, twice, three times, humility, 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 because I'm convinced that nothing will move you to the wrong building project quicker than pride. Nothing will move you to the wrong building project quicker than pride. I mean, this is what happened in Genesis 11, isn't it? That building project was a real problem, the Tower of Babel. Oh, that was a bad one. Go read about that terrible building project. What was at the core of that for those people? Pride. What did they say? Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. We, are we will undertake a literal building project to pridefully make a name for ourselves. If we do that, we are doomed to fail. Pray with humility. Learn with humility. And friends, we have to relate with Humility and one of the best mechanisms to destroy pride is to begin to build genuine relationships with people that are entirely different than you. Not just related to their race or their ethnicity, of course not. You know, if you're not an engineer, get to know some engineers. They're going to be different than you thought, right? But I think that getting to know people that are different than your race and your ethnicity should be included in this conversation. I have certainly seen this next step to be helpful in my own life. In other words, I have directly experienced the power of humbling relationships across racial and ethnic lines. And not just with one person either. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. You know what I mean, right? Like, don't begin to humbly build a relationship with one person of a different race or ethnicity than you and then think that you've got it all figured out. Like, do, do, please do not do that, right? Because the truth is that we all, we all have a unique and beautiful story to tell. We all have, every single one of us, a different story to tell without exception. And what we get to do, all of us, every single one, is if we choose and if people choose to share, we get to hear those stories. This blows me away. It's a, it's a lot of what I get to do as a pastor, is just sit with someone over coffee, sit with someone out here in, in our lobby with the beautiful windows as the people walk by to Planet Fitness, <laughs> sit, sit with people 
right? And I'm sitting with some of you in that space, and do you know what I'm thinking as the people walk into Planet Fitness? Every single one of them has a story, a unique and beautiful story. And maybe I'll never get to hear their story, but I've gotten to hear a lot of your stories. And, and you can too. Buy someone coffee and ask them to tell you their story. And if they choose to do so, that's holy ground. Don't take off your shoes, that would be weird. <laughs> like in the coffee shop, don't take off your shoes, that would be weird. But that is holy ground. If someone chooses to share their story with you, no matter who they are, that is holy ground, tread lightly. Do not stomp on that ground. Tread lightly and ask good, curious, genuine questions. Hold that story with care, and maybe if they're interested, share your story too. One person in my life who has been gracious to do this with me is my friend, Brian Goins. Brian was the youth pastor uh, at, for a number of years, no, he's no longer is, but for a number of years, like 9, 10, 12 years, something like that, at Christ Community Sister Church, Christian Fellowship Baptist. And when I served at our Brookside campus, one of my many joys was getting to launch our youth group. And so that brought me into the student ministry space uh, across Christ Community and beyond. And this picture is actually me and Brian. Uh, we, are, uh, we are at a fall retreat, late at night, hanging out. You know, we were probably delirious because we had been up since the crack of dawn and we were working with students, right? But track this with me. This retreat, it's a collaborative retreat with middle schoolers and high schoolers from across all five of our campuses and including Christian Fellowship Baptist's youth group. These retreats were amazing. They were a miracle of God. <laughs> they were evidence, I think, of him building his temple and inviting us to participate in it, and they were hard work. Hours and hours and hours, months and months and months of work that we could only do because we had first related to one another with humility. Church, I cannot even describe to you the grace and humility that Brian has displayed toward me over the course of our multi-year friendship. Actually, um, do you know who was in this room a couple of months ago when I preached my very first sermon here as the campus pastor? Brian and his wife, Venus, and one of their sons, Ricky. When I first met Ricky, Ricky was like a first grader. Ricky is now like my height and is playing offensive lineman for his high school football team. And Brian texts me. He knows I'm back, right? He says, hey, when's your first sermon? Doesn't even matter. We're there. And they were. They were sitting right back there where Janet's sitting right now. That's where they were. I actually sent this sermon, today's sermon, to Brian this week. I just wanted him to read it. Tell me if it was terrible. <laughs> and he's always willing to help me. So good, so gracious. And he, he texted me. He saw that I was planning to end or thinking about ending the sermon with the story of his and I's relationship. And he said, you know, that reminded me of when we rode around the city and you noticed the absence of banks and the overwhelming presence of payday loan places. You were seeing what was on the other side of the wall of our city. And he's right. He could not be more right about that. But do you know what else happened on that day? He took me to his favorite place in the city to get Polish sausages. It's a Shell gas station on the northeast side of KC Mo. And it was so freaking good. <laughs> he drove me uh, to his mom's house. He just wanted to stop in and check on her, make sure she was doing okay. Asked me to come in, introduce me to her. 
He drove me by where he works. It's the big, massive postal center in KC Mo. He's worked there for years. Listen, this is Brian. Years and years, he's working the night shift there, which gives him the freedom to come to meetings with us during the day so that we can plan these fall retreats. He snuck in sleep somewhere. I don't know how, right? We laughed a lot that day. We cried too, I think. We cried about the the hostile dividing walls that still are up in our city. We cried about the, the dividing walls that still exist in our churches. Listen, I'm not saying that any of this is easy. In fact, I know that in this sermon, I've basically said the opposite. The truth is that God's building project of his holy temple is hard work. It's almost impossible, but that's why we can't forget that it's God's project. It's God's project. It's God's promise. And what God says, he does. Every single time. What God says and promises, he does. When God undertakes a building project, it doesn't go unfinished. So here again, the glorious good news of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but instead fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, his family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In Christ Jesus, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Amen and amen. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may it be true of us. Forgive us for the ways in which we have occasionally and maybe repeatedly gone to the wrong building project, to the wrong building site. Forgive us of that, Lord. We have sinned against one another, and we have sinned against you. Redeem us, Lord, and by the power of your Spirit, move us back to the right building project. Help us to pray with humility, as we are hopefully doing now. Help us to learn with humility and help us to relate with humility. And thank you for inviting us to be part of this extraordinary building project. We love you, God. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.